Thank you, mini choir. Great to have y'all. Great to have you too. I see more and more of your faces coming back here. It's wonderful to see you. And I was, uh, I got, I got a little during the the singing. I got a little chuckled because I remembered right as I was sitting here singing and watching Terry lead worship. I just all of a sudden remembered that I had a dream last night. You know, sometimes you don't realize that until later in the day. And it was this dream where I was preaching. This, this may be the first dream I've ever had where I'm preaching, actually. I have dreams about church and things like that, but I was preaching, and uh, uh, I went long. And I think I was worried last week about going long in the first two sermons because we had a you know, quick turnaround and cleaning all that. But I went long, and then I, I kept going long, and I, like, I couldn't quit talking. You know, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't quit, quit preaching. And I just continued to go long. I was like, well, I'm not done. I'm going to continue to preach. And, and, and y'all just started getting up and leaving one by one. And until there's nobody left but the pianist and the organist. And I was like, well, I guess I'm done. And uh, so I went and sat down, and I thought to myself, I, I, you know, I miss the old days when it was rude to get up and leave before the service was over. So maybe someday in the future it will be common where people just, they're done, they just leave. So anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. But, yeah, I just, I couldn't quit. I couldn't quit preaching. <laughs> but, you know, my son uh, can't quit talking. Did you know that? Uh, my little two-year-old, he will talk and talk and talk, even if, even if no one's talking to him. He'll talk, and then if we're talking, he'll, he'll talk as well. And my, my wife feels bad for him because we'll sit around the dinner table and we'll be telling stories and laughing and everything because my youngest child's third grade. And so we all kind of know what we're talking about, and he didn't really understand what's being said. So we'll be talking and laughing, and all of a sudden he'll go, ha, 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 <laughs> Like he's trying to get in on the conversation. You know, he's trying to be a, be a, uh, a contributor. But he's also in the block-building phase where he's taking these large Lego blocks and he's building them and he puts them together and he builds them up until he has this really tall tower. And you know how it is. They build the tower until it gets too tall. And when it gets too tall, it falls down. And when it falls down, he gets mad and he takes them and he throws them and they're like, no, don't get angry about it. And he takes them apart. But then more and more, he realizes that's what happens. And so he'll build it and then it'll fall down. And then he'll get me to kind of take them apart for him because it's a little harder to take them apart. Now take the Legos apart, and he'll put it back together, and he'll, he'll build it up again. And that's just what he does. He, he'll, you know, he will do this for maybe 20, 30 minutes. He doesn't do it all day long. But when he's playing, he'll build it up, and then it'll, it'll fall down, and he'll build it up again. And, and, he, and he knows that it's going to fall at some point, and he, he realizes that, and he just rebuilds it. And, and the basics for building, and the basics for rebuilding a tower like that are simple. You just put the blocks together, and you add another one on top, until you can't go anymore or until it falls. And even though little John David knows it's going to fall, it doesn't deter him from rebuilding. Our lives are filled with times of building and times of rebuilding. And as we start emerging as a church and as a society from the pandemic in the next few months, all segments of society will be forced to rebuild what had previously been constructed. Uh, business models will have to be rebuilt. You've already seen that. And there's been some changes that some businesses have made that will never go back. Certain restaurants, things like that. School models will be, have to be rebuilt. Families may have to be rebuilt on some level. Even churches will have to be rebuilt on some level. First Baptist is no different. The pandemic stopped us in our tracks. We were just doing our thing and worshiping every week and doing ministry, and then all of a sudden it came to a screeching halt one Sunday, and we're just now starting to see more normalcy as there's a vaccine and people are feeling more confident to come and all these kind of things. And as a church, it's time for us to start rebuilding 
what God had previously built. We're in Nehemiah today as we start a new series, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read through the first four verses as we get into here. Nehemiah says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship here this morning, we do thank you that we're able to be here. I thank you for each and every person that's here today each one that's watching online, on television, we're thankful for them, still carving out the all-important time of worship, worshiping their risen Lord and Savior. And Lord, we thank you for an Easter Sunday, that even though it was different, it was much better than last year, and we look forward to, to moving on and to worshiping you and doing ministry here in the near future, doing more ministry in the near future as a church. We thank you that your church might be slowed and your church might uh, be, be uh, different at times, especially during now, but it never goes away because the church will never fall away, Lord, until you come back. And you haven't come back yet. And you have left a remnant across the world who has been tasked to spread your gospel and make disciples. And we thank you that we are your servants. We've been told to do that and tasked to do that, Lord. And so we thank you for that privilege, but also that responsibility. So, Father, as we look into this book of Nehemiah today that you've given us in our Bibles, that we would see throughout this series what it is you're calling us individually and collectively to do, Lord, as we seek to rebuild different areas of our lives uh, in this year of 2021. So, Father, I pray that uh, you speak through me today, that my words are your words, and you fill me with your spirit, and we all leave with, with, with hearing what we need to hear today. We ask these in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you today three principles that we see in this passage when it comes to rebuilding anything, any organization, any church, even a church. Three principles. Number one, rebuilding includes knowing the problem. Right? Rebuilding includes knowing the problem. If you don't know the problem, then you can't do anything about it. Sometimes we try to solve problems that aren't problems. You know what I mean? mean? Sometimes there may not even be a problem we're trying to rebuild or solve. But sometimes we're trying to maybe solve a problem. We don't know the, the, the right diagnosis of what the issue is. But we see here what the problem is. And we know what the problem is in this scripture. So rebuilding includes knowing the actual problem. Verse 1, and I just read this. It says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev. This was about between November and December. In the 20th year, thinking, of, uh, there's, thinking about that this is Nehemiah's 20th year of service. We'll get into more of that later. And he, he asked his brothers, one of his brothers, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. So I want to give you some background 
As we move through the series, I won't give you as much because you'll know it by then, but especially as we start this book and you know what we're talking about. The year is 446 B.C., and some 140 years prior, in 587, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered the nation of Judah, which was the last remnant of Israel. And the Babylonians came, and they burned the house down of the king and all the houses of Jerusalem. And they broke down the walls surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And some 50 years later, in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great then invaded Babylon, and Babylon fell, leaving the Persians the conquering power in the area. But Cyrus was a little different uh, than Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a policy that he allowed all conquered peoples to worship their own gods and establish some semblance of autonomy as long as they paid their taxes to the empire, as long as they remained loyal citizens, they could do what they wanted to religiously. They could, they could worship their own god, which is kind of unheard of back in the time, because the emperors themselves were considered gods. And those who had been uprooted from their homes were encouraged to return to their homelands and reestablish their religious practices. This is where the book of Ezra takes place, which is before the book of Nehemiah. And about 50,000 Jews living in exile in Persia left and went back to Jerusalem. Now, these Jews, most of them had never lived there before, and some of the senior adults had. And so they were the only ones that had an idea, a remembrance of what it looked like. But the young ones had no idea. And they get there in Jerusalem, and they, and they start rebuilding the temple. And they rebuild the temple, and some of the older members there who are 80, 90 years old that vaguely remembered as a child see the completed work of the temple, and they think to themselves, this is not what it used to look like. This is not what, it, it was, it was a, a sad imitation of what the temple was. Because the young people had no idea, and they, and they built it, and it was just nowhere close to having the glory of the old days. So they tried to rebuild the temple. It wasn't the same. And then there was gossip that went through the group, and they got sidetracked, and there was opposition. And the city just laid in shambles, and it was a project that was unfinished. Ninety years later, we pick up in the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a Jew who is serving the Persian king, the next Persian king, Artaxerxes. And he's the cupbearer, which means he had a very, very important, almost like his right-hand man type position. Cupbearer was someone who would taste the wine so the king wouldn't be poisoned, but he had a lot of other very uh, important tasks. So Nehemiah, with his privileged royal position, he asked his brother how his kinsmen were doing, the one that went, went, went back to Jerusalem, and he receives this report, verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province uh, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Now, two words here describe the, the people. First is great trouble. This can also be translated distress. And it's the strongest Hebrew word that can depict danger or misery. They, they, they are in the greatest misery they could be in. They're in the greatest danger and distress they could be in. And the other word he uses is shame. This has the idea of what shame is, people being disgraced, people being insulted. So not only are the people in a bad place mentally, there is, there is more bad news. Look what he says. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
The people are broken down mentally, spiritually. The city is physically broken down. So what do you do when you're mentally broken down, when you're physically broken down, when you're spiritually broken down, especially for them when it's directly related to where they live or their circumstances? Before we can rebuild our faith or rebuild our lives or rebuild our church, we must understand the problem. An article came out this week that the American church attendance has hit an historic low. American church, churches across the whole country has hit an historic low. For the first time in 80 years, uh, Gallup poll found that less than half of U.S. adults belong to not just a church, but less than half of American adults belong to a church, synagogue, or even mosque. So they've been taking it even further out into Judaism and Islam. Less than half. 1937, U.S. church membership was 73%. 1937, 73%. And remained near 70% for the next six decades before around the turn of the century, 21st century, there was a steady decline. And by 2018, it had dropped to 50%. And 2019, dropped to 47%. Now, this is not even taking into account the pandemic. This is before the pandemic. In 2019, it dropped to 47%. And a decline in membership is due to not only a decline in religious Americans belonging to a church, but also an increase in Americans who do not follow a religion at all. Even more statistics says this. Over the past two decades, the percentage of Americans who do not identify with any faith has gone from 8% in 2000 to 13% in 2010, to now 21%. No faith at all. 21% of Americans. The trend is likely to continue as church membership is strongly correlated with age. 66% of Americans born before 1946 belong to a church. 58% of baby boomers do. Gen X is 50%, which is actually shocking to me. I'm Gen X. And 36%, I figured Gen X would be lower, but 50% of Gen X and 36% for millennials. But the American church is, as a whole is broken because Americans are broken. Over half of Americans are walking around living this life with no hope in a God of any sort, let alone the one true God. And so as we emerge from this pandemic, we can bet those numbers now are probably even worse. I would not even want to know what they are. Rebuilding the church or even the country includes knowing the problem, and the problem is people are not worshiping God. Number two, rebuilding includes praying to God. Praying to God. So many of our answers to life's problems always seems to go back to prayer, do they not? But we have to continue to be reminded of this day in and day out. Look at verse 4 says, Nehemiah, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now we have seen this decline and Christianity in America and church going slowly over the years. We've seen it happen and we've read articles and we know with our own eyes about it. 
So when things happen slowly like this in front of our own eyes, we don't necessarily have an emotional response because we've seen it happen. I don't know what Nehemiah thought he would have heard he was going to hear. I don't know if he thought he was going to hear that the, 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 the Jews in Jerusalem were thriving. But what he heard was so shocking to him that he wept. And that not only did he wept, he, he mourned. And he fasted. He, he cried. He, he took days to mourn the situation. He fasted. He prayed to God. He didn't fast to lose weight. He fasted because he literally could not eat for the sorrow had overwhelmed him. You've been there before. Where you've been so sorrowful you can't eat. That, that's the type of fasting you don't plan for. Because you're crying and you're praying and you're mourning. And so instead of viewing prayer as some last resort, Nehemiah, Nehemiah viewed it as a first resort, so to speak. A, a first step. The first thing he did after mourning and having the, emotion, the appropriate emotional reaction, he goes into a prayer time to God. So I want to show you today some subpoints, four attributes of Nehemiah's prayer that we can emulate when we face a rebuilding situation. Four attributes. We already got one on the screen here. Number one, Nehemiah's prayer addresses and acknowledges God. Addresses and acknowledges God. He says in verse 5, So I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is his salutation in the prayer. He didn't just say, oh, Lord. He says this, oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He got all these titles of his character and his attributes. This is a prayer that is dependent on being who God is, knowing who God is, acknowledging that God is the true power. He is the higher power. He's a God who keeps his covenant. He keeps his agreement with his people. Do we really have faith that God is who he says he is? When we hear bad news about the church, do we just think to ourselves, oh, well, that's how it's going to be. Can't do anything about it. Country's changed. Churches changed. This is where we're going to be. Or do we go to our knees and pray to God about it? That's what Nehemiah did. He addresses and acknowledges that God is still the God in charge. Amen. He's still the God in, the power, in power. He's still the God reigning and ruling over all. And he tells him this. Secondly, next thing he does is he confesses the sins of Israel. He confesses the sins of Israel. Verse 6. He says, let your ear be attentive. And your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, even though God had been faithful to his covenant with the Jews, the Israelites had been unfaithful. Much of the Old Testament is about this. Much of the Old Testament is God says, do this and you'll be blessed. If you don't, uh, there'll be judgment. And then they 
would go off the rails. They would turn away time to time. Sometimes they'd come back, then they'd be led away again. And most of the Old Testament prophets were about returning to the Lord. Return to the Lord and he will bless you. But if you don't, there will be judgment. And so the fact that Israel and Judah were destroyed was part of God's judgment on the Israelites. And their current exile, their current misery, were a direct result of their sin against God. And he clearly says this. Now, interesting thing about Nehemiah is even though he wasn't alive when these things took place, the exile he's living in, he wasn't alive for that. None of them. They were suffering because of the sins of the past generations. Even though he wasn't around for that, because he is a part of God's people, he takes personal responsibility for their actions. And so when we think about uh, the American church or our church or America, we can blame past generations all we want to. We can blame people in charge now. But Nehemiah took it on himself. Took responsibility for it. When's the last time we've, we've done that? No, I'm part of this too. We're all on the same team. We're all God's children. If God's church is shrinking or declining in some way, then it is up to me. I'm responsible. This is what Nehemiah says. He realizes they're all in this together. So we confess our sins, not just our own sins, which he does. He confesses the sins that Israel had made years ago. Number three. The next part of his prayer is he asks God to restore his people. He asks God to restore his people. Verse 8. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. This is part of the promise that he said. And guess what? God did it. And they're living in it. But look what Nehemiah says. He says, remember the word that you said to Moses, verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah reminds God that he was faithful to his promise to scatter them, but that he would also be faithful to his promise that if they returned to them, God would bring them back. And the good news is he will. Nehemiah is banking on that. He says, you said you would do this and you did, but if we turn to you, bring us back. And guess what? God will. We don't live in a hopeless situation where we just say, well, society has changed, the world has changed, it's just not going to get any better. Now, that's what Satan would want you to believe. You never know when you're just a step away from a revival. The first great awakening in, America, in the United States in the 18th, 18th century, 1700s, America was not some Christian place of just peace and bliss. It was not that at all. It was worse than we are now, believe it or not. The first great awakening went through cities and towns and states, and all these people were saved, and there was a wave of gospel new life going through America. We forget that. This is in the colonies way before we ever were Americans. And that great awakening enabled our country to be established on 
Christian principles, morals, and values. So we're never too far gone. And we can ask God that if we turn to you, he will bless us. Well, who are God's people? Well, he says here in verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. One of the reasons I think the American church, and I'm not talking about First Baptist. I love our church. I feel like we're strong and healthy as, as much as we can be as sinners. One of the reasons the American church is so weak as a whole, I believe, is because we don't view ourselves as servants. We want God to serve us. We want, what can we get from God? What can we get out of God? What can I get out of this church? What can I get from this church? What can I get out of from Jesus? Yes, salvation on some level is about you because you have to be saved through Jesus Christ. But the moment you cross over from death into life, the moment you have salvation through Jesus Christ, it is really no longer about you. It is about you being a servant to the Most High God. And then going making disciples and ministering to other Lord and Savior. And it's not yourself. It's Jesus. And he is the king. We are his servants. Any kingdom where the servants think they run things, it's not going to go very well. But we know who the king is. We know who the, where the power lies. And we know our role that we were redeemed by great power and strong hand, God will restore us. This is Nehemiah's prayer. And finally, number four, he asks God to give him success in serving the Lord. All right. Now, even though I just went around and said it's not about us, that doesn't mean that we go around flogging ourselves <laughs> Look what he says in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Eight times the word servant is used in this prayer. Eight times. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Success meant that God actually would have to do some things. Now, success... We don't know what it is. We need to know what success is on some levels with our problem. But for this, he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Well, who is this man? This man is the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, there was a huge problem with this prayer. Because there was a royal decree that had put a stop to rebuilding Jerusalem. And those things didn't change. You can read the Old Testament history. There would be a vow that was given, a decree, and they were stuck with it. They, even Daniel in the lion's den, there was a royal decree. They had to be fed to the lions, and then, and then he, the, the king loved Daniel. They, you know how the story, the people told on him, and they threw him in there, and the king wept. Because even though he gave the royal decree, there's nothing he could do about it. He didn't want Daniel going to the lion's den, and God miraculously saved him. So these things, things didn't change. And there was a decree that said you could not go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And this is what Nehemiah is facing when he prays this. 
And he says, the, the goal is to go back and rebuild. That's the problem. That's what we need to do. And he says, Lord, give me this. Give us this. He didn't just say the servant. He says, the servants, all of us, give us this because I might be the cupbearer to the king of this area, the, the, the most powerful man in the area, but there is a God in heaven who is more powerful than any earthly king. So that's what he says. Ask God to give him success and doing something that seemed like it would not be able to be done. And finally, number three, rebuilding includes playing your position. Or being the member of the body of Christ that God's called you to be. The body of Christ. So many different parts of the body. It's like 192 bones in the human body, is that right? Think of all the different parts of the body you have God takes all these people with different backgrounds different family situations not, not even everybody in this church is even from here anymore we got people moving down from all places into Charleston puts them all together in the body of Christ gives each person a role a gifting to serve the body and Nehemiah's was important. Look what he says. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This was a position of great privilege. He, was, he had the insight to the king. He was with the king all the time. It was an administrative position. Yes, he was tasked with tasting the wine so the king wouldn't be poisoned. I don't know if I'd want that position or not. But it, it involved him understanding where the wine came from. Involved him understanding people. Knowing who was around the king. He had great insight into the kingdom. He had great access to the king himself. And so he did what he could do with what God had given him, which was a great responsibility. A great privilege. Where is it in your life, what can you do? What can you do as we seek to rebuild different parts of our lives. What do, you, what do you need to pray for today to be rebuilt? Is it a family situation? Is it a job employment situation? Is it just a concern over our city, our state, our country? Is it our church? Is it the American church? What is it? We're going to have our invitation today. And I don't normally do this. So I'm sitting down front, and I'm there to pray for you. And I don't ever get to pray myself, so I'm praying for you. And I'm going to lead us. I'm going to sit down right here and spend a few seconds, minute praying for our church and the gospel in our area. And I want you, if you're able, to join me. I want you to join me. You don't have to come down if you can't, but if you can, down to the front here today, asking God to remember his people as we turn to him, as we rebuild the things in our life that need rebuilding. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, well, we thank you for being the God that is over all, all the kingdoms of the world, all the powers and principalities and authorities. And your word says, if we humble ourselves and seek you, you'll bless us. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. 
what a blessing they are to my life. And that we could also be a blessing to our community. We know, that, Lord, that the evil one wants nothing to do with it. Wants to keep us on the sidelines. So whatever our situation is, Father, that we would be able to go to you and pray and that you could use us to do our part in building back the church of Christ here in Monk's Corner. Lord, if there's one in here today that's never placed their faith in you, never turned from their sins and received forgiveness of sins and salvation, that they would do so today, that they would be saved. Father, we give this time to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.